University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. Now take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 57. Now you might be thinking, wait a second, you told us we were going to spend a long time in the Gospel of Matthew. Why are you pulling a bait and switch on us? Well, sometimes texts that parallel each other within the Gospels sometimes offer us a fuller perspective. And Luke's parallel version of our story in Matthew this morning offers us a bit more to chew on, if you will. This text is quite peculiar. What we see within the life of Jesus is Jesus is inviting people to come and to follow him. This text is really unusual because we're going to find three people that desire to follow Christ, but these three people won't leave following Christ. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, does anyone feel like this is supposed to be a very simple exchange, right? Hey, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus, this is an easy slam dunk. Great, come follow me. Was Jesus giving some sort of riddle that no one can guess what has a head and a tail is brown and no legs? The answer is a penny. Or is this some sort of unsolicited zoological or environmental science lesson? Instead, what I perceive Jesus to be asking is simply, wherever? Really? Unlike how he's depicted in our Sunday school material artwork, Jesus was not this majestic, always bleached white robes, tightly trimmed beard, and hair straightened by one of the disciples who also served as a barber. Jesus was a coarse-haired, olive-skinned, scruffy-looking Jew. He was homeless. He traveled from town to town, depending on the hospitality of others. The animals, the animals have a place to rest, but Jesus has no place to rest. Literally, the Gospels have turned Jesus, they have positioned him for Jerusalem, In a matter of six months, this glorious following is going to come to an abrupt end. Jesus is going to feel the brunt end of being beaten and tortured and crucified. And so in a sense, Jesus is asking this man, really? Do you want to follow me there? So yes, Jesus responds to this man. While it comes across as a form uh, of a statement, it really seems as if it is a question. Wherever. Really? It's so stated, it's certainly implied that this man walked away from Jesus, not willing to sign up for this. He wasn't willing to buy into this kind of experience with Jesus. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but in 62 days, LSU will kick off against Georgia Southern. You know what they say about starting your season with a powerhouse football tradition like the Georgia Southern Eagles. But in 61 days... 
Someone will pull their RV into Death Valley for the beginning of a season-long tailgating extravaganza. All right, if we're honest, it's probably going to be like 50 days for somebody. I'm really ready for football season. There's something about the games, of watching it with friends, of team gear, the cheering, the tailgating around here, the tailgating. When it comes to college football, the SEC is a big deal. Estimate that 4.5 to 6 million people will tune in to the games on TV with, with scores of other devoted fans attending the game. Now, Tiger Stadium sits, just in case you weren't aware, 102, uh, excuse me, 102,321 people, and said that an additional, depending on the game, 50 to 100,000 people will come and tailgate and never actually go into the game. And as if the experience wasn't enough, Spanish. Fans spend thousands of dollars. On average, the SEC college football fan drops anywhere between $1,200 to $4,200 on buying tickets and tailgating and concessions and parking and merchandise. This is according to SunTrust Bank. That's, that's, that's $1,200 to $4,200 per person. And when it comes to our love of our teams, we pay the cost. The man who got a zoological answer from Jesus and walked away is contrasted with another character that appears within the Gospels. His name is Zacchaeus. And if we wanted to have fun, we'd sing that song now, but we'll save each other time. We're told that Zacchaeus was a Jewish tax collector for the Romans. Um, we've discussed this in the past. Uh, the Roman tax collectors were public enemy number one. They were hated by the people in Jesus' day because they're not only collecting taxes for this domineering power of Rome, but also because they had the threat of Rome on their lips, they could take a little extra for themselves on the side. But Zacchaeus was even more hated because he was a Jew. He was taking, care of his, uh, taking advantage of his own people. And Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming to town, but the crowds are too large that he can't see. We know the story that, Jesus, uh, that Zacchaeus climbs up into this tree, and Jesus sees him and calls him down and says, I'm coming to your house for dinner tonight. Luke tells us that people were aghast by such an act. Why would Jesus eat dinner with such a, a despicable man, an enemy, a financial oppressor? And Jesus goes with him to his house. But before Jesus even utters a word out of his mouth, Zacchaeus tells Jesus that he will give half of his possessions to the poor. And the crowd would have bemoaned this declaration, thinking to themselves, this man has plenty, he's not going to suffer by giving half of what he has away. But then Zacchaeus shocks and astonishes the crowd when he says that he will give back four times the amount that he has taken from other people. Y'all, this is before Jesus even utters a word to Zacchaeus in his home. He didn't preach a sermon. He didn't give this long dialogue. Instead, Zacchaeus saw what Jesus was about. He was willing to pay the cost of losing what he had built for himself for the sake of following Jesus anywhere. Without even asking Zacchaeus, wherever really? Zacchaeus answered Jesus with an act of faith. Zacchaeus went there. In fact, he was giving everything away to follow Jesus. Text says in verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, 
but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Is it just me or does Jesus need a lesson in sensitivity and empathy? What we know about Jesus as a person filled with love and mercy, this seems a bit out of character. Now, I cannot relate to this man. My father is alive and well. He'll be celebrating a birthday on Wednesday and an upcoming retirement. But this week, we, we were faced with some unexpected grief within our family. On Monday, we had to make a difficult decision to put down our 11-year-old Labrador retriever, Layla. And this was my dog. And growing up, I wanted a black lab, so I couldn't hardly wait to buy one when Jennifer and I got married. I picked out the breeder. I drove two and a half miles to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. When I arrived, there was two dogs left. But that dog walked straight up to me as if to say, well, we're going home. I didn't get to pick her. She picked me. And on the drive home, she was wailing in the back seat in her kennel. And so I took her out and sat her in my lap. And she just stared up at me the entire drive home. That dog went with us everywhere we went. She was a a wonderful big sister when the girls arrived into our lives. So when the decision had to be made on Monday to end the suffering she was experienced due to to kidney failure and a monastized tumor, um, I was in ruin. I rubbed her ear. I kissed her nose. I looked her in the eyes when the doctor gave her the shot. This week has been full of forgetting that she is gone and mourning. This is my dog. It's a dog. So I can't even begin to imagine what it's like for this man to lose a father. But knowing what grief does to the soul, it seems a bit out of character that Jesus is so insensitive to this man. In fact, this exchange feels like a contradiction of overwhelming compassion that we've seen expressed in Jesus just in the text that we have been looking at in the Gospel of Matthew. So there's got to be something more going on here. And a closer look at the historically accurate burial customs of Jesus' day gives us a better perspective into this exchange. Essentially what this man is saying to Jesus is, give me a year and then I will come follow you. You see, according to the Jewish burial customs upon the dead, the dead would be wrapped in cloth, perfume would be placed on their bodies, they would be covered up in order to the smell of decay, they would be stuck into into a tomb, and about a year later, after the body had time to decompose, the family would open the seal of the tomb, they would collect the bones of this person, and the bones would be added to an ossuary, a container that carried the bones of all their forebearers before them. So when Jesus says to this man and sees this man, essentially he's saying, let me first go and bury my father. Translation, Jesus, hey, let me go take care of this stuff for about a year, and then when I have the chance, I'll come and to follow you. You see, one of the fascinating stories in all the gospel comes from the gospel of John, in which Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law drag this woman before Jesus, and indignant, they declared that she's been caught in the act of adultery, in which the law of Moses commands is that she should be stoned to death. But really what they're trying to do is debate Jesus to see how he would respond. And seeing their self-righteousness, their indignation, and their entrapment, Jesus bends down on the ground and begins to draw in the sand. And they get so angry Their hands are beginning to white-knuckle around these rocks. Finally, Jesus stood up and requested that the one among them that has never done anything wrong before God be the first to throw their stone at this woman. 
John says that they began to walk away until it was just Jesus and this woman. Jesus commissioned the woman to live a new life from this point forward. Faced with the past and with the new future, she chose new life. So although it comes across as cold and unempathetic, I believe what Jesus is inviting this man to do was to move beyond the past and into new life. This man's situation is a metaphor for things about our past that tend to bind us up, hold us up, and and prevent us from discovering new life in Jesus. As we contemplate our past, it can often be a source of, of regret and bitterness and disappointment and betrayal. Whether this is because of a a relationship or family matters or work or or trauma or self-infliction or something so much more, our past can oftentimes be our future unless we have the courage to step out in faith to move beyond it. While our past is brought to us, where we all can contemplate it, whether it's for good or for ill, the past does not define us in Jesus. Jesus seeks to bring reconciliation to wrongs committed, relationships broken, and choices gone wrong. As Soren Kierkegaard wrote, life can only be understood backwards, but it's lived forwards. Why waste strenuous energy and time trying to reclaim and change our past when we can focus on a new future, a new life through Christ? Jesus was inviting this man to put this thing down, whether this thing be a person or thing of his past, to no longer be trapped and enslaved by it, but instead to discover freedom in the life that is Christ. As my daughters would sing from Disney Frozen, I'm never turning back. The past is in the past. Let it go. I know Justin was hoping I would sing that, but that's not happening. Do we trust Jesus to step into a future of redemption and transformation from our past. The text wraps up here in verse 61. It says, Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So I've got a modern-day parable for what I think is happening in this exchange. One of our family's favorite pastime is to go to Costco. If there was a Costco cult, we would drink the Kool-Aid. The primary reason we love Costco so much is the dozens of free samples that they give you when you go there. Uh, And it's, it's wonderful. So on a given day, they could have smoked salmon or biscuits or ice cream or various items from the bakery. And we enjoy going around once. And then maybe a second time. And maybe a third and fourth time. And you can stop judging me, Judgy McJudgerson, that it's okay we go around four times. Now, why are they giving out these samples? It's not out of the goodness of their heart. They want you to buy this product that they're shoving on me, and I'm going to gladly receive it into my mouth. And what, is that, what do you do after this? Typically, if you know you're not going to buy it, you'll say something along the lines of, this was amazing. Hey, we've got to go pick up this thing over here, and then we'll come back and pick up here. But do we ever come back? No. If I were a betting man, I would bet that this man probably heard Jesus exchange with the first two people and quickly realized that he was not willing to truly follow Christ. 
I might translate Jesus' response to this man this way. Careful, your disingenuous cards are showing. This began with a bold declaration. I will follow you, Lord. Now the Greek word here is fascinating. It is the, it is the word akulutheu, which is a derivative of the same word we use for disciple. But when you take a bit closer look at it, what he's actually declaring is, I will let you make the road or the way. As if his declaration was enough, he proclaims that Jesus is his master, the person who has absolute right over his life. And yet, faced with the simplest of obstacles, the depth and the truth of his words show themselves for what they are. As one author put it, broken vows are like broken mirrors. They leave those who held them bleeding and staring at a fractured image of themselves. How easy is it to declare fidelity for Jesus only to have that cave in when schedules and priorities and worldviews and desires and goals come in the way? As Eugene Peterson puts it, you don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. And making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Now Luke chapter 9 and Matthew's parallel in chapter 8 raises some very challenging questions. First of all, what's the purpose of these exchanges? Doesn't Jesus really want people to follow him? So why is he making it so difficult? What if Jesus was searching for something more and far different than what these people were expecting from him? Did the first man ever come back around to following Jesus wherever he went? Did he find himself laying witness to Jesus' death and resurrection? Did his faith take him beyond the difficult circumstances because he knew that following Jesus anywhere was better than any comfort he could create for himself? Did the second man put his past in the past and move forward into new life? Did he witness Jesus' literal resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, finding a second chance? Did he believe that Jesus could resurrect him from the death spiral of his brokenness? And what about this third guy? Did he put his disingenuous, flaky commitments to the side so that he could discover a full journey of following Jesus into a new way of thinking and living? These are challenging exchanges. So what's the purpose of them? When I was 15, I got my permit, and I began to campaign to influence my parents to buy me a car, as almost every teenager in here did, except for that one responsible person's like, no, I didn't ask him, I just bought it myself. Well, we're not as good as you, and thank goodness you are a model in our life. Thank you. <laughs> but I begged my parents for a car, and I wanted a specific car. I wanted a Jeep Cherokee. Uh, my parents had the, um, the gall to introduced me to this Toyota Camry that they wanted me to buy instead. No offense to anybody who has a Toyota Camry. That's just not what a 15-year-old me wanted at the time. And so we found it. It was a 1987 Jeep Cherokee Pioneer with crimson lining down the side and a sunroof. I was in heaven. I loved that car. And about six months after getting the Jeep, I was on my way to school, when all of a sudden it sputtered and it cut off. I tried to crank it again, it didn't work. I waited a few minutes, I tried to crank it again, and then this cacophony of horrible sounds began to come from the engine. What happened? What happened was that I failed to realize that my 15-year-old vehicle had a leak in the engine. 
I failed to notice the oil stains on the driveway and in my parking spot at school. And because I failed to notice these things, $6,000 later, we put a new engine in that baby. Now, I could have blamed my dad for not noticing it. I could have blamed the previous owner for not making us uh, privy to this information. But the reality was I was responsible. 16-year-old me owned the Jeep, took care of the Jeep. It was my responsibility. Now, fun fact, after dropping $6,000 to put in a new engine, I accidentally ran into the back of a Lexus on the way to school about five months later. Now, in my defense, the Lexus had slammed on brakes because they weren't paying attention that a school bus had stopped ahead. This text challenged us to consider our priority in following Jesus, our responsibility. How often does the rough and rugged and rebellious nature of Jesus rub us the wrong way? These exchanges with the religious leaders and touching the lepers and casting out the demons and the insurrectionist tones of his message and ministry and injustice stood against, oftentimes it stands in our way. Do we walk away from Jesus when the image of what we wanted him to be doesn't fit into who he actually is? And how often do our dead things stand in our way These decaying and hurting and painful and suffering grudges and mistakes and fear stand in our way of following and finding new life in Christ. But I think this challenge of this text is is not to make us feel bad. We need to remember that the Gospels are good news. Good news that there is a different option. Good news that Christ is not inviting us to stand there empty-handed, choosing not to follow him, but good news that he can lead us into new life. But it causes us to step back and wonder what we are willing to pay the cost of to follow him. In the mid-17th centuries, it was known as the golden age of the pirates. An unlikely villain rose from the pirate community. It was a former, former English Royal Navy officer named Joseph Bannister. Something happened within Bannister's life that caused him to revolt against the, the very navy that he served. And he flew the flag of a pirate for several years. But this all ended when his ship, the Golden Fleece, was sunk in this epic historic duel between him and the Navy ships. And for nearly 350 years, the whereabouts of the Golden Fleece fascinated and bewildered archaeologists and treasure hunters. And for years, they hunted for ships based on their expertise and and local legends, and two men decided they were going to make this their pursuit, John Chatterton and John Matera. And they decided to stake everything on finding this ship. They staked their financial well-being, they staked their reputation, they even staked their marriage and the amount of time it would consume them for years to find this ship. And when they dug deep and dug deep and dug deep, they found nothing. And so they were faced with a challenge to continue in this process or to give up and to lick their wounds and go home. Instead, they made a decision on the hunch of a story that had been passed from generation to generation for 350 years of potential whereabouts of this ship, they moved forward, and they found it. As Chatterton would say, if an undertaking was easy, someone else already would have done it. You see, Jesus often spoke in stories, and there's a fascinating way he talked about the kingdom of God. In one story, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field for years, and accidentally found by a trespasser. 
The finder is elated. And so he goes and sells everything he has to buy the land for that treasure. Or he says the kingdom of God is like a jewel of a merchant on the hunt for excellent pearls. And finding one that is flawless, he immediately sells everything he has to buy that pearl. You see, when I look at this text, I don't see the negative ramifications of three people who chose not to follow Jesus. To me, what this text does is it personifies the people who did choose to follow Christ. The unexpected people like Zacchaeus, like this woman caught in adultery, like Peter who would betray and deny Jesus. When I look out on this space this morning, I see people who've chosen to make Jesus the central priority of their lives and following him every single day. There's not a day goes by where Don Garland does not put the needs of other people before himself. That man is constantly finding ways to to serve the church and to serve others. Katie Boyd shows us the way of Jesus through her commitment to make each person that steps through these doors feel the hospitality and welcome of our faith community. Justin Langford, our interim minister of worship, chose to step out in faith on this journey with UBC and has been a bastion of of commitment through his time and his presence and his care and his energy that he gives to this role. Bonnie Ellis daily shows up the authenticity of her journey with Jesus as she gives of herself to care for our pastoral staff by volunteering in the office 15 plus hours a week. Linda Hammond shows us the grace and strength that comes from following Jesus. Well, also, that was a segue for me to also point out that um, Linda Hammond and I beat Bo and Abner this week in golf um, by eight strokes, mind you. Von Crombie and Rod Boyd loved the Lord, and they showed it by the way that yesterday they showed up at 8 a.m. just to move in our new minister of community and Church of the Nations. Rosalie teaches me every single week through her example as to what commitment and continual growth in Christ looks like. So many in this space show us what it looks like to truly follow Jesus. Jesus is our pathfinder. Jesus has ventured into the unknown to discover what this new way of thinking and living looks like. Jesus has ventured before us to show us where he is leading us, to show us that this kind of living does work. Jesus has ventured into the unknown of God, walking among humankind, venturing into a new way of thinking and living, but Jesus invites us to come onto this journey with him. Jesus called people to follow him. The Gospels call these people disciples. It's the Greek word we've spoken of this morning, akulutheu. So the disciples were people who were called to follow, to become the same as, or as this text conveys to us this morning, disciples are those who allow Jesus to make the road or make the way for them. Jesus' invitation is to all of us to change our way of thinking and living. And this is not a solitary act at the moment we choose to follow Christ, but instead an invitation each day, an ongoing act of changing our way of thinking and living so that we can discover the fullness of God. Jesus is inviting you onto an adventure. Jesus is calling you. Jesus is calling me. Jesus is calling us. Will we follow?